This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. Here's your host, Corey Tusick. This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Tusick. On today's episode, I interviewed Alex Gladstein. Alex is from the Human Rights Foundation, um, and you've probably seen him online talking about uh, you know, bit, uh, Bitcoin on Twitter. And, uh, you know, he has a couple articles. He writes for Bitcoin Magazine as well. Um, so I wanted to talk to him originally about the uh, Petrodollar article that he wrote. If you haven't checked it out, it's on Bitcoin Magazine, and I'll put the links uh, to his articles in the show notes. Um, but yeah, check out his article about the Petrodollar and, and see how, you know, when we went off the gold standard, then we kind of made our dollar backed by oil in uh, Saudi Arabia and um, all the kind of conflicts. It gets into all the conflicts of, you know, interest and in, in how you know, whether or not it's good to be for us to be a part of that. Um, and also how, it, you know, it's kind of going away at the moment. And then, you know, how Bitcoin can kind of, you know, provide uh, hope and for a peaceful transition to something that isn't the petrodollar. So um, I really appreciated Alex coming on. Um, this one's a little bit shorter than usual. Um, it's uh, kind of my fault because I had to push. I had something run over and I had to push our time. Uh, back a little bit so and Alex had a, a hard out so we um, got about 40 minutes uh, in good conversation so I hope you guys like it and enjoy it uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and also follow me on Twitter at Bitcoin Simply and if you have any questions or comments just send an email to Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast at gmail.com I hope you enjoy the show so thanks for coming on. Um, I got Alex Gladstein, um, Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. Um, and you, I, I came across you, you know, probably a year or so ago. But then uh, I, once I read your article about the petrodollar in Bitcoin magazine, I was like, all right, we got to talk. And then I, I think uh, the message I sent you was uh, when you were talking to Preston, you said something about China and the genocide Olympics. And I was like, okay, huh? I like this guy is, I gotta, I gotta talk to him. So, uh, thanks for coming on, Alex. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so I gotta ask, um, you know, to give a little background to the audience about the, you know, the, I'm sure a lot of them have read the article, the petrodollar, but, um, you know, how did you start getting into that story? I mean, I know it's something that you're probably aware of, but you've probably been working on that for a while, I assume. And it's something, a lot of information that a lot of us don't really even know about. Sure. Well, actually I was um, pointed in the direction of researching the foundation of the dollar system, uh, actually through, through Bitcoin um, and the criticisms that people um, levy at Bitcoin uh, with regard to its energy use. And, you know, I was kind of like, well, what does our current system uh, rely on? Uh, and I just kept, started to dig a little bit. And there's a lot of folks in the space who've correctly pointed out uh, that it's not like when you swipe your Visa card at the store to buy something that that's like settled at that fintech layer. That's like on top of a banking layer, which is on top of uh, the U.S. government and the way that it produces uh, money, the way that it controls money, et cetera. And, and that relies on the global demand for the dollar in many ways. So I started to dig into it and, you know, I knew some monetary history, but uh, I, I learned a lot more. Um, and, you know, basically the story is 
you know, the world used to use gold as the method to settle balance of payments issues between countries, um, you know, let's say, you know, in modern history. And that has evolved. And uh, that evolved after 1944 to using the US dollar to do balance of payments, uh, pegged at $35 per ounce of uh, uh, gold um, <clears throat> through the Bretton Woods system. And then that collapsed in 1971 uh, when Nixon closed the gold window. And ever since then, after a period of sort of brief instability, uh, the world has sort of used, um, I mean, for back of, lack of a better word, uh, you know, the treasury bill as the, as the reserve currency of the world. Uh, even today, about 60% of all foreign exchange reserves are held um, in, uh, in dollars, actually. So um, uh, that transition is, is, was very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, and in that context, I'd heard a lot about the petrodollar, but there's not a whole lot of it like on the internet, right? You had, I had to really dig into a lot of like, I was going to say, it's not something you could like Google, you know, like, well, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's kind of weird. There's a lot of like fringy theories and things like that. And it took me a while to dig through it and kind of piece it together. Um, but actually it's, it's like a well-known topic in international relations. It just, it just isn't discussed as much in now. Uh, it was discussed a lot in the 1970s when it happened, and it just was discussed to a certain extent in the 80s. But ever since then, the topic of the petrodollar and petrodollar recycling, which is the key mechanism that that I want to detail, um, essentially has fallen off the map. And I guess there's two camps. Uh, the larger camp, the common knowledge camp, uh, almost everybody believes that basically after Nixon closed the gold standard that um, the world kind of coalesced uh, around uh, the treasury as like the thing to save in. Um, and that these were like, this was like a market driven thing uh, because the, the US was like the most stable or largest economy, et cetera. I mean, this mm -hmm. is essentially what most people believe. Um, but when you dig into it, um, you realize that there was a lot of really interesting events that happened between 71 and 75, um, you know, that most notably relating to the United States and Saudi Arabia. Um, so very briefly, uh, you know, the Arab uh, ex oil exporting nations of OPEC really came into, uh, the, into, into power. Um, in the sixties, they had like basically, uh, started this um, effort to decolonize and nationalize and, and, and the governments of these uh, mostly dictatorships, they, they, they kind of uh, seized control over, uh, over how to, how to, you know, um, dig up and, and export the oil. And they used this as a weapon, obviously in 73 in response to us food policy and to our support for Israel in the Yom Kippur war and the price of oil went from like $3 to like $11 and like uh, from the end of 73 to early 74, <laughs> like in a period of like three months. So this gave them like a seriously insane amount of wealth. Like basically uh, uh, they 10xed their surplus uh, in, in a year. And and they they had more surplus in terms of balance of payments as, as a collective than, 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 the, than, than the United States, than the entire industrialized world. And and um, the LDCs or like the developing countries had a, had a, you know, had, uh, had debt, right. Had ma major, major debt. Right. So mm -hmm. there were hundreds of billions of dollars of this uh, 
of these petrodollars uh, between the mid seventies and, and early eighties when the oil prices started to tail off um, that uh, really changed the world. And there's a couple things, um, you know, oil went, kept going, it got all the way up to like $39 per barrel, right. Um, by the end of that decade, um, <clears throat> we were in the cold war, right. So, you know, the incentives for the U S and the, in the other European countries, you know, to cooperate, were not, they were not zero, like, like, you know, you know, even though like the U S may have been pursued some policies that were a little adversarial or hegemonic, like, you know, what were the other allies in our, you know, what were they really going to do? I mean, you know, so we had a kind of interesting into a corner. Yeah. yeah, We kind of had an interesting context there. Um, And uh, well, ironically, the Europeans were much more dependent on oil from the, from the Middle East than we were like about 50% for a lot of those European countries. Uh, the U.S. could pursue a little bit more of a self-sufficiency uh, or Western hemispheric approach. And that, that's kind of what gave Kissinger the confidence to go out and do what he did. So basically, uh, after Nixon closed the gold window, the dollar devalued by 10%. By summer of 73, the dollar had fallen by 20% against uh, other major currencies. So we, we had a massive inflation issue. Uh, and that was really concerning to people who held us debt, <laughs> like obviously, yeah, yeah. right. Uh, you don't want to see your savings dwindle like that. So in order to finance Vietnam and our social programs and everything else we do over here, the solution was, um, to sell bonds basically. And they, they hired a bond salesman. So the sec- new treasury secretary, William Simon was a bond salesman came in from the private sector and he and Kissinger oh, between the summer 73 and, and, uh, sorry, summer 74 and the end of that year, basically ironed out the petrodollar recycling pact. Um, and, you know, a petrodollar is just dollars that are earned by an oil exporter in exchange for oil. Um, and the idea was that uh, the, the Saudi side of the bargain, w- which would extend to the other OPEC countries largely through mm-hmm. their leadership, given that they were the swing producer of oil, was that they would... Um, uh, denominate sales in dollars. You had to buy the oil with dollars. Um, and they would take uh, the profits and plow that back into U.S. treasure, U.S. debt, okay? Um, on our side, the U.S. side, and that, 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 that agreement was actually in, it's in paper and it was secret. It was classified and, and only um, parts of it were declassified in the 90s. Uh, so, and that was just a secret agreement to it was a had... secret because the US was not supposed to be pursuing a unilateral approach with oil producers, it was supposed to be working in concert with like other European nations and uh, other allies. Um, there was the also countries got to love us, they got to love us. Yeah, there was also the Saudis didn't really want it to be that well known because they were that would have caused them PR issues in the Islamic world, given the whole US Israel thing. So, there were like reasons why the Saudis and the US wanted this kind of on the yeah. lowdown. Um, the not the, the non-secret part was obviously what they got in return was obvious to the whole world. I mean, we sold them an enormous amount of weapons. So their uh, weapon sales uh, went from like five, 10 million or something like that to like hundreds of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in 74, 75. Um, they became a non-market actor when it came to weapon sales. Let's put it that way. <laughs> they were a market actor before and then they were not afterwards. So this this whole thing is a story of like, this being a political pact and a non-market decision, right? This was not like the Saudis just being like, oh, we want to invest in U.S. treasuries. No, no, no. This was like a political pact that created the petrodollar. So we, we, we assured their security, sold them weapons in exchange for them 
selling oil in dollars and recycling that money back into U.S. treasuries. And again, this is contra the common economic belief or interpretation, which is that the oil exporter income went when it what was loaned was lent out through Eurodollar banks to LDCs. Okay, so these Eurodollar banks, which really started in the 50s and 60s as, as a Cold War kind of uh, ability for kind of uh, Eastern Bloc nations to have dollar accounts uh, in Europe, um, it became the like the the the, the destination for, for, for a lot of the Saudi wealth, right? The, the, their accounts, right? Um, you know, outside of the purview of the Fed. Um, and, you know, some of that money did go, you know, to high yielding, you know, uh, emerging market countries. Um, but it, it was a minority. Most of the wealth went to America, Europe, and then Euro dollar accounts, uh, the, the majority, okay? Uh, and, and a lot of that went to treasuries. So this was kind of the deal. Uh, and this allowed the U.S. to pursue a very strong hand against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. We could, we could literally print oil. I mean, this is so important, the idea that we, we, at the time we could, we could print the money to buy oil, where this, whereas the Soviets couldn't. They had to, mm-hmm. like, you know, they had to, they had to get dollars somehow, or they had to dig it out, dig the oil out of the ground. Right. Mm-hmm. It gave us a massive advantage, um, which, you know, that's a great externality of this, you know, my opinion. I mean, th- it's not all bad. Right. I mean, obviously yeah, yeah. For, I mean, it's for, a, a great way to lean on your, your enemy's weaknesses, you know, and, and uh, break up the Soviet union. Yeah. But, but I mean, you know, essentially it really did over time allow us to finance a, 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 an increasing debt to GDP ratio, which was, 25%, 30% at the time today, it's 130%, right? So, um, and, you know, normally when a country has that kind of ratio, uh, outside investors back out, like the currency devalues um, and the country usually starts to pursue more exports and then and then it brings it into balance. Like there's this natural balance uh, between having a really strong currency and a really weak currency, usually in international markets. But because there was this like artificial demand for our debt, uh, through the petrodollar pact, that's where it was all created. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't have that balance, so we kind of continued to, um, you know, roll up debt over the decades. We continued to financialize, uh, le- over leverage. Um, our percentage of our GDP that's in finance and real estate is now twenty percent. It was only ten percent, you know, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so people in certain sectors in America have done really well: finance, defense, technology, services. But in manufacturing, not so well, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to note that the petrodollar system, um, which was at the beginning, uh, you know, it's two, it's really two things that are key here. It's the pricing of oil in dollars, which continues to this day, in which the U.S. government has 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 defended quite aggressively uh, in the last mm-hmm. few decades. And it's the recycling piece of it of putting those profits back into U.S. debt. Now, at the beginning, from the mid '70s to to the early '80s. The OPEC countries are what bought our debt, um, but after uh, the oil, price of oil fell, um, and after, and especially after the first Gulf War, they blew all their savings basically. So mm-hmm. we needed to find new people to buy our debt. That was the Germans, the Europeans, then it was the Japanese, and then it was the Chinese. So you know, throughout the eighties, nineties, and two thousands, there were there were different countries that were like our largest uh, purchaser of of treasuries. Um, and we kind of went through those cycles and American foreign policy was, was very 
you know, pointed towards making sure we had a buyer of our debt. Um, but the, uh, the, 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 the kind of founding part ha has been aggressively defended, you know, and again, just to be clear for that first decade, it was, it was part and parcel because we needed the OPEC countries to, to invest in our debt, give us a lifeline, right. Um, allow us to print oil essentially. Um, but later it's, it's, you know, that, that, that was so important because it like really had so many other effects. Like it, it really made all these other countries around the world need dollars to buy oil, strengthening the currency pair between their currency and the dollar. And it just made the U the U S dollar extremely dominant. Um, you know, even the British pound was being used for like something like 20% of oil trading in the mid seventies and by like 76, 77, that was down to like 5%. So, so it really like helped us consolidate control in that way. And the fact that oil is priced in dollars, again, has been defended, like after the fall of the Berlin wall, like we didn't have another Bretton Woods, like the US didn't say, hey, let's like come up with a new deal. Actually, every time there was like, an, a, 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 like someone came up with another idea, we reacted, right? So in the mid seventies, there was actually talk about an SDR, uh, a special drawing rights, you know, unit of account, kind of like the Bancor that Keynes came up with in, in, in Bretton Woods, that would be used as like this currency basket to um, price oil in. And the US actually uh, did a, another deal with Saudi where we got Saudi into the IMF, into like a position of power there with the agreement that they would never allow the SDR to become a reserve currency. So that was another kind of cool deal that we did or nefarious, depending on your position and nationality. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, you know, the next big challenger was the Euro. Of course, we saw, you know, writing was on the wall for this. And uh, there were people who wanted to, do, to there to be a petro Euro instead of the petrodollar, right? So the, the key actor, obviously there was Saddam Hussein, priced his oil in euros under the UN oil for food program and was selling about 5% of the world's oil in euros as of 2002. Well, we know where that went in March, 2003, the U S invaded Iraq. And, uh, by June, 2003, they were back to selling oil in dollars. Again, there, there weren't any like other really major efforts outside of like rogue States, um, to price oil in other currencies. Uh, you know, and, and that, that this, this like defeat of this idea of the Petro Euro bought us a lot more time. And, and even until the end of the 2000, 2010s, like the last decade, almost all oil was oil and all the derivatives on top of it were all, were all sort of traded in dollars. Uh, like I think 99% or something like that. So, um, this system, this petrodollar system is, is now starting to decline. Uh, the, Chinese government stopped buying treasuries in 2014 and, and the whole world's been sort of dishoarding since then. And I, I, we are, the U S government is now the, the largest purchaser of our own debt. Um, so that's kind of where we are now. Um, and you know, it will continue to decline, uh, but it really worked very well for the U S for, for four decades, at least for the elites in the U S um, the coastal elites, et cetera, the people in power. Um, we had this exorbitant privilege, right. And people got to understand that that's, that's our, that's our monetary system. And it's, it's based on oil and the fossil fuel industry. It's based on dictators and a pact with Saudi Arabia. It's based on the war, military industrial complex and, you know, our defense of this pricing system, which led to, for example, part, you know, what I believe at least uh, in part, the invasion of Iraq, the destruction of Iraq. Um, and, and it's based on this like uh, financialization 
of our own economy, whereby like the, the, the 1% have, have really, really done really well at the, at, sort of at the expense of the bottom 80%. Yeah. So I think that like my interest in exploring this all came about uh, because people are always criticizing Bitcoin's energy use, right? Or like, you know, cost per transaction. And it's like, well, let's actually be fair here and look at the negative externalities. And the dollar is like hugely bad for the environment. I mean, the US is military is the world's number one largest purchaser of oil. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think this is important to think about. Like we could head in a future direction where the reserve currency that, that, that the money system is built on is based on an open neutral standard that, that no, gov- no one government can manipulate that is very possibly going to head in an extremely uh, you know, carbon neutral-ish direction uh, where you already have something like, I mean, anywhere from, depending on estimates, 30, 40, 50, 60% of it, uh, even 70% of it during the summer, uh, you know, Bitcoin mining comes from renewables at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, given trends in renewable tech and pricing that that's expected to, to an increase in the, in hydrocarbons and the price of coal and oil are tied together. So, you know, that this is expected to, to just become more green in the future, basically. And, you know, if the world reserve currency ends up being something that's like Bitcoin instead of the petrodollar, okay, well, the U S doesn't have to support dictators in the middle East. Um, we, you know, don't have to pursue this kind of inequality uh, exacerbating um, kind of like economic policy. Uh, We no longer have to like go to war to defend, you know, to prop up that currency. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I, we, you know, uh, you know, the the currency itself could be, could be more green. So that's, that's the, the thesis of the paper. And, and, you know, I, it's a it's an optimistic paper, I think, because it, it looks at a future where, where we can kind of fix some of these some of these things. No, I agree. Uh, it very opt- uh, made me, you know, feel great afterwards, you know, reading it and like kind of, you know, hopeful for the future. And a lot of the things that, you know, the media currently doesn't want you to feel. Um, but uh, yeah. And one of the things that struck me was, um, you know, so the, I mean, my audience knows this, but I don't think I mentioned it to you. So making a, a documentary uh, called Searching for Satoshi. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the, you know, I'm not trying to find Satoshi. It's kind of like just the alluring narrative. And, and the, the story is basically to like kind of explore the origins of Bitcoin and, and all that kind of stuff and, and find out, you know, why we'll never find Satoshi and why that's important and good. Great piece on that by Pete Rizzo in Bitcoin Magazine recently, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I know. I actually, I'm like, I got to get in touch with him about that because we just are like in the beginning stages of pre-production and um yeah and i think he read all of story. satoshi's writings yep which ever. is um, like something <laughs> i'm in the middle of doing as well and i i saw that article come up so I, I read his article and i was like all right i got you know i mean there's just so much studying you have to do to come into a to a um a film but um uh but yeah so anyway so my thesis is that you know we'll never find him and that's important and that's a good thing um but whenever i was reading the article and by reading your article, I had, I'll admit, I did read it once, and then I had Guy Swan read it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Ops to Guy Swan. Yeah, exactly. And um, and it just struck me um, whenever you got to the part talking about how you know Saddam Hussein was trying to take us off the petrodollar and go to the uh, petro euro, and then like right away we invade his country and hang him, you know, and it's like. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, all I could think about at that moment was like, well, that is reason number one why we'll never find Satoshi and why Satoshi was anonymous. Because if you're going to yeah. try and if you're going to challenge the- this, uh, it's not going to work out so well. And like, obviously, I think at first, like Satoshi knew what he, she, they, whatever. Satoshi knew what they were doing. But but like, it's not like the U.S. government knew in the first few years that this thing was going to be like a challenger to its primacy. Yeah. You know, that, that 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 is still not the case probably today, even as it is, you know, a trillion dollar asset or whatever. They should, whatever, they should whatever know. <laughs> Well, I mean, here's the thing is that I think American policymakers would be wise to think hard about this, know that it's not stoppable, um, understand that mining does not control Bitcoin um, and try to understand. Elon should pay attention to that as well. Yeah. I mean, we leave him aside, but yeah. the, the, the um, you know, look, America is well placed to be very dynamic in the in a future Bitcoin economy. I mean, we have a ton of the infrastructure, a lot of the smartest people working on the project, a lot of the developers, like a lot of the holdings. You know, none of this gives the government control over it, but it, it I think it puts us in a pretty advantageous position. Uh, you know, look, we we are a nation uh, built on the ideas of private property, free expression. Uh, you know like basic Freedom freedoms speech and yeah um and Which a lot of the world doesn't have you know and, and i mean i know and, you know that yeah of course but you know that those reverberate with bitcoin's values and that's not the case for a lot of the world as you just mentioned you know like four plus billion people live under authoritarianism and, and bitcoin does not reverberate with the values of the people who rule them that's not you know this idea of sovereignty or private property or free speech is is contra to the regimes in russia saudi arabia china etc so I think it's like could be really good for America for like at least when I talk about America, I mean the Declaration of Independence, not what happened after. Uh, yeah. I talk about the ideals <laughs> of America. And I mean, really, it's like to me, it's like you got Satoshi and the founding fathers right on the one side or you got Nixon and Kissinger on the other. You know, yeah. who, who, who are you going to go with? You know, it's like kind of a slam dunk for me. Yeah. Well, and I have to I have to thank specifically you um and preston pish and then guy swan so guy said it to me but whenever you were talking to preston you guys talked about patriotism and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and guy whenever i he and i had our first conversation i brought it up and i was like i've been like really conflicted because i love america and everything but like when you look at the macro of like what's going on around us it's like do i love this you know what i mean like and um and guy, the way he put it to me basically was like, he was like, if you don't believe in the ideals, like he's like, you love America. Like if you don't believe in the freedom and all that, that you're un-American, you know what I mean? Like a lot of the things that are happening around us are un-American. Yeah. And like like our, our support for the Saudis is, is un-American. I mean, yeah. so, you know, the amount of corruption, the rotating door between the military and uh, the arms trade and all this stuff, there's, there's a ton of the prison complex, the, Drug, war on drugs, like all this stuff is un-American. If you actually mm-hmm. just like look at the founding documents of this country, um, the you know systematic mistreatment of minorities and like the the lack of kind of equalities before the law for certain people based on their identity or ethnicity or belief, like all this stuff is un-American. If you just yeah. read the Declaration of Independence um, and you read the Bill of Rights, so I. Um, yeah, optimistic about a future. I think people would do well to learn more about the, the way that th- their own currency works. Uh, it's tied into a broader 
system, you know, again, through the lens of the Cold War, where, where America kind of established hegemony in different ways. It wasn't just financially, it was also agriculturally. It's very important. We've mm-hmm. kind of used the IMF and the World Bank to make like these all these emerging market countries kind of uh, reliant on us for food imports. Um, again, these are kind of like not market decisions. Uh, there's, this is not the free, uh, you know, the, the free hand of the, of the open market. <laughs> yeah. It's not Adam Smith here. Um, so this is dependency theory, you know what I mean? Uh, some people, you know, even call it neocolonialism or whatever. The point is that like, there's a lot of like discrepancies in like market dynamics around the world related to America as like a hegemonic power. Right. Mm-hmm. And some of those are good and some of those are bad. And I think people need to look very hard at that. And it's especially absurd for, for people who don't understand this to be attacking Bitcoin for its energy use or whatever, when, you know, they've literally never questioned the energy use of the currency they use today. I mean, forget, forget the banking. I mean, I'm not even talking about the banking system, yeah. which, which uses way, which uses way more energy than Bitcoin. I'm just talking about, what holds what what props up the value you know of that dollar in your pocket um at the end of the day it's not just that people want the dollar from a market perspective it it, it, it's that the u.s has designed a policy that is got a lot of negative externalities to make that dollar valuable and wanted and to drive up demand for it even though interest rates have been low in recent years and that's you know part of the reason why it's kind of overstretch mm-hmm. imperial overstretch mode here like what are we going to do i mean there's only so far we can go down in rates in, in in terms of you know kind of keeping everything going and you know that's led for people to look elsewhere in many ways like like the chinese the europeans like they're not especially excited to buy us debt <laughs> that's like yeah and you know they kind of hold it um and they don't sell at all because that would be really bad because it makes up a huge percentage of their cha- of their savings account. But they're they're moving out of it and they're moving into other things. Some countries are moving back into gold. A lot of countries are doing more business in their own currency with each other. So this whole system's winding down, um, and we'll have to see what kind of comes next. There's a lot of different theories, and I think it's quite conceivable that we could have kind of like a Bitcoin standard uh, in, in in the future, where um, you know, Bitcoin is sort of the ultimate monetary good, but then there's uh, national currencies underneath that. And then, you know, then there's um, bank created money underneath that um, mm-hmm. and then credit underneath that. So, so, I mean, it's, it's not that different of a hierarchy than it was during the gold standard. It's just uh, <laughs> Bitcoin is not a dumb rock that cannot teleport and is easily centralized. Like a lot of the main issues, gold can't be stored in your head. Yeah, a lot of the issues with gold are that it got totally captured by governments. Like it got completely centralized, including by the U.S. Right? I mean, they stole it from other governments, basically. So. Yeah, I mean, steal is is a debatable word. I mean, yeah. maybe I would agree with you, but clearly, yes, the the whole Bretton Woods thing was like, let us hold it, and you know, we'll we'll, we'll be good stewards um, of your gold, and uh, we promise to hold the peg. And uh, you know, <laughs> that that was uh, definitely reneged, you know. So yeah. so that we walked that one back, right? So anyway, um, I, I think that there's some interesting upside here, uh, again, just relating to the environment, uh, relating to human rights, uh, relating to peace, uh, mm-hmm. and relating to equality. I mean, so, I mean, those are, I mean, what do people care about? Come on. Those are like four of the biggest things. You got peace. We got the environment. We got human rights. We got 
equality for people, uh, economic equality. Uh, I mean, these are, it's funny cause these are kind of like seen as kind of, um, more progressive values or more left-wing values. And it's kind of funny that I think that Bitcoin will end up bringing a lot of, uh, correction to the world and to America, uh, in a way that it's funny because most critics of Bitcoin, there's a lot of libertarians who hate Bitcoin, but like most, most, liber, most Bitcoiner critics are kind of on the left. And it's just, it's kind of funny that they're attacking something, which I think one day will, will support their, will support some of their aims. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. But look, at the end of the day, it's for everybody. It's non-discriminatory and neutral. And a lot of people will just use Bitcoin for like an administrative uh, logistical reason literally they don't care they won't care about it's about anything ideologically it'll just mm-hmm. be like the best thing at their disposal and and maybe their bank account gets shut down or whatever they, they're economically isolated or whatever i mean this does not like using it does not necessarily conflict with your ideas on how much should the government be involved in the healthcare system like i, I you know th- there's a debate there but like like people from all different political stripes are going to use it just like people from all different political stripes like engage in capitalistic behavior, regardless of, you know, wh- whatever, like just like the, you know, like the um, champagne communists and, and hipster Marxists and whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you can believe whatever you want to believe, but you're going to logistically administratively start to be using Bitcoin in the next few years, um, or you're going to have some sort of passive exposure to it. So, mm-hmm. so that's yeah. kind of uh, what I believe. I agree. And I think, you know, I think one of the beautiful things about Bitcoin is that it takes like, because we have this polarized world right now where you're like, you're in the left camp or the right camp, which is unfortunate for me because I'm in like neither camp. So I don't identify with either of them. And I'm, I feel like I'm on an island by myself, just like I am. I'm not a part of either part, uh, you know, of these fights going on. But the, um, but I feel like Bitcoin pulls the good out of kind of like how you said, like, you know, it, it highlights a lot of the like ideals that, you know, like the left is really big on. And then, and then the right, it's like, you know, Hey, like, look, sovereignty, you know, individualism, you know, private uh, property. Yeah. It's like, it, it kind of like assimilates them into like harmony. And I, I hope that that's where we head towards. What, what do you think it's going to take for the U S you know, cause I agree with you. If the U S I, I think if any country wants to become a major player, they should adopt it as, their their peg um but the well, u.s I, is I, well there's so many I don't know if peg it, but yeah yeah i mean i think what's going to happen is like some countries are just gonna start to add some of it to their reserves okay so their savings right so mm-hmm. some so- apparently like the singaporean sovereign wealth fund already has so you'll, it's just going to be this gradual thing where now you're seeing corporations start to put a little bit of on their balance sheet okay um, as like a long-term inflation hedge. Okay. Well, maybe governments start to do that too. I don't know, one, two, 5%. That's like the first part of the narrative. And then over time, they may like start to realize that, that, they're, that that's really the asset they should be holding. And that that may shift to becoming a really large part of their, of their reserves. Um, you know, and at that point, uh, your holdings of it, uh, relate to balance of payments and relate to the economic performance of the country. The interesting thing here, though, is that just to be deep here, is that this any country can can create, you know, especially in the next twenty to thirty years, um, but really forever, uh, 
you know, can uh, issue either new Bitcoin or earn Bitcoin by harvesting natural resources, mm-hmm. and especially renewables. Um, and that has not been the, I mean, you can't just like harvest dollars. Like, so uh, the ability for like Sudan or Ethiopia or the DRC or like Paraguay to like harness hydro or wind or solar to create the world reserve currency is pretty amazing. I, I mean, you know, it, it really gives this new idea to this idea of energy independence. Mm-hmm. So this is something I'm, I'm doing, writing a piece on this for my new, for my next essay for Bitcoin magazine. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the humanitarian aspect of Bitcoin and just how like, obviously it helps as a peer to peer payment, payment rail for, for, you know, aid or donations and goes around corp corrupt middlemen, but, but also it can help with this whole sort of dependency, dependency thing Mm -hmm. where these like uh, LDCs or emerging market countries are like super overly dependent on other nations. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I'm interested in seeing how that all plays out long-term. Yeah. And then um, I I think too, I, I think it gets around a lot of the hypocrisy of, you know, us supporting things that we don't, um, you know, necessarily believe in like a, you know, whenever you, um, how we, how in the U S we don't know a lot of the stuff that happens around the world and give it like a star Wars reference. Like I remember talking with somebody about like on a deep level and a totally nerdy conversation about star Wars, where we were like, you know, when the Jedi were in charge, like, it's not like it was perfect. Like there was slavery around the world, like around the galaxy. You know what I mean? Like, we're like, and if you look at the parallels to like our current world, like, you know, if you live in your U.S. bubble, like you, it's like, oh yeah, we rid like slavery in the Civil War, like it's gone. Um, you know, we, you know, the the concentration camps that happened in World War II, and we we were the victors, and we we've solved that. And then I see things like the Uyghurs getting, you know, sent off to concentration camps, and I'm like, oh my god, like why is this being talked about? And like. So, I mean, you live on the front lines of that. Like, am, am I going crazy and missing something here? Or is like the media just and like everybody kind of willfully ignoring the atrocities that we see around the world? Uh, I mean, some media cover it really well. I have friends who are journalists who've been yeah, yeah. covering not to Not to say bad about everybody, but yeah. yeah. Um, I, it, it's not, I mean, the quote unquote mainstream media is is a conglomeration of things, uh, corporate interests, the journal, the individuals themselves, but also the demand, the market. I mean, they are fighting for ratings, right? So yeah. they want to do, you know? yeah, they want to do what they think will get them higher ratings. Like, so there's a whole like formula there. But in general, um, you know, certain parts of the world are 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 more interesting than others. I mean, is there any moral reason why we should be, you know, more, more interested in Israel, Palestine than Armenia, Azerbaijan? I I don't know. Like what is, is, aren't all the human lives the same? Um, So there, there are, there are reasons for that, but, but obviously Americans are a lot more interested in that that, than the other one. Now, maybe those reasons make sense because we've been more deeply involved because we've been funding one side or whatever. But, you know, we've also been funding the Azeris. So, I mean, there, there's, they were part of our war and terror thing. So, you know, you dig in and, and you know, what ends, up, what ends up happening is some parts of the world get a lot of attention and other parts don't. 
there, there's been a war. I mean, the war in the DRC in the Congo between 97, 2003, and even up till now is like, I mean, should have, I mean, morally speaking, been on the front page of all the news, especially as we get all of our freaking, uh, you know, Coltan and, and, uh, you know, all the rare, rare minerals that go into our phones and cars and stuff from that country. Um, but it, you know, it's just very rarely ever like a thing, like no one cares. So there's a lot to be desired there. Um, but, uh, you know, in all these places, I mean, Bitcoin's going to make an impact. I mean, look at Palestine. I mean, Venmo is freezing any sort of donations to those groups out there. I mean, I mean, it sounds crude, but Bitcoin literally does fix this. Like you, you can just, yeah. if, if you have, there's a journalist organization or a relief group in Palestine that you want to help and you can, you, they have a smartphone done deal. I mean, local Bitcoins is vibrant in Palestine, very easy to sell Bitcoin for fiat currency there. Um, you can send any amount of money to anybody with a smartphone and then they can cash out. I, I just think that is a hugely underappreciated piece here. Um, mm -hmm. So Anyway, maybe we can kind of con conclude, you know, with that yeah. thought. But I, I think that people need to appreciate Bitcoin's properties, and and you know, maybe you won't appreciate them until you need them. I guess is is uh, one way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I think it's one of those things where it, it's great. It kind of starts with the positive feedback loop of number go up, and then, um, you know, I had Bitcoin uh, Mike from Bitcoin Beach on, um, you know, and just hearing how it's helping people there. So hopefully you know, continues to help people around the world. And, um, you know, we won't see things like uh, the, like you said, the, the genocide Olympics and the hypocrisy behind um, all that kind of stuff. You know, it, it, uh, it would be great to see, you know, cause like on a human level, like you said, all human lives matter. And I think we, uh, you know, <laughs> on a human to human level, if you take the corporations and the big powers out, we uh, kind of all are on the same page. So um, but Alex, well, I know you got to run. Um, mm -hmm. so I'll let you go here, but, uh, thanks for coming on let people know, you know, where they can, uh, you know, check you out and where they can find you and, and like Bitcoin sure. magazine and your other stuff. Yeah. I have a column up at Bitcoin magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Gladstein and you can follow the work of the human rights foundation at hrf.org. Thanks so much for having me. All right, Alex. Thanks for coming on. Yep. Thank you.